Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In 1756, the colony of Pennsylvania was at war. With the incursion of the French, the western Delaware peoples of the Ohio country raided and burned the frontier villages of William Penn's peaceable kingdom. Although the colonial government was staunchly Quaker and did not believe in a standing army, the efforts of Benjamin Franklin rallied the province into action. In September of 1756, Colonel John Armstrong led 300 frontiersmen into the wilderness to raid and destroy the Delaware village of Catanning. Although celebrated at the time, modern historians question the Catanning raid's true motivations and its ultimate effectiveness. On this episode, we discuss the Catanning raid of 1756. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events. And we have many this summer, so I look forward to meeting you if you can make it out. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. It's been a long break, but we're back. Before we jump into today's discussion, I'd like to review a few points from the podcast that I think uh, I'm very proud of and you might want to be uh, updated on. Uh, First of all, where have I been for the last few months? Well, you're going to find out tonight. For the last few months, and I think our last podcast was uh, February of 2016, uh, I've been writing a book. Uh, The research has been longer before that, but the actual writing process is quite long and quite tedious and quite cumbersome. Um, and you do really have to commit yourself fully to it. So uh, I haven't forgotten you. Uh, I still, you know, hope to keep growing in our community. I know what uh, the podcast means uh, to your daily commute. I've heard from many of you. I know what podcasts mean to my daily commute, and I know the pain and suffering that goes along with it. Not really first world problems, but uh, I'm back. So that's important. Um, also, before I did leave. Uh, for the uh, mid-season break when I was writing. Uh, I did a uh, sort of way a benefit podcast, a fundraising podcast on the Confederate flag. Uh, you can still find that at wartimepodcast.com. Uh, that's been doing great. Those of you that have donated and, and, and bought the podcast, I hope you found it enriching. It's a longer episode, uh, and your money goes a long way to really helping this podcast stay on the air because everything's paid out of pocket. I do not advertise, and I will not advertise. Uh, I want to keep it straight and to the point, so your money makes that possible. Uh, any donations you'd like to give uh, through buying that podcast, you can do that, or you can 
uh, just donate on the website wartimepodcast.com. It goes a long way, uh, so I'm grateful for that. But anyway, we're back, uh, and the topic of today's conversation is one that I've been fully immersed in, uh, again, as I said, for the last about five months, uh, and I'm excited to sort of reveal what I found and share with you what I found about a topic that people know relatively little about. Uh, let's jump in. Very few people could tell you much about the battle that occurred uh, in September of 1756 at the Indian village called Kitanning uh, in the Ohio country, that is today's modern western Pennsylvania. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, the biggest is that there really aren't many historians working in this field. One thing I hear a lot uh, about me personally uh, is a question of when will I write a book about the Civil War? Um... Uh, or World War One, or any other subject. But the question I mostly get is about the Civil War. And my answer is always the same. Uh, I do like the Civil War. I moonlight, I like to say, in the Civil War. I have a few book ideas about the Civil War. But the reality is the, the American Civil War is the most heavily studied subject in history for the last 40 years. Something like two books per week are released each week on the Civil War. Uh, and there's a lot of good historians working on that field. Nothing against it. I enjoy it a great deal, and I'd like to write about it maybe someday, but I am a firm believer in sticking to what you do best. Uh, the reality is my field, which is the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution on the frontier, uh, is an important war, as we've seen in Season 1 of Wartime. And there's like five people actively publishing books in the field. And they're usually good books. I mean, mostly they are. Uh, myself in that. Uh, but I have to ask myself, where am I best served to write? Well, uh, you have very few people writing. If I have the ability to share my scholarship on, on that period, I should. And this book I've been working on, which will be released in November of 2016, be sure to pick it up, War in the Peaceable Kingdom, The Catanning Raid of 1756, is, I think going to be an important book in the larger, uh, I guess, collection of materials on this period. At least I hope so. Uh, my bookshelf has nearly every major and important book in the field. Uh, I always view uh, bookshelves like conversations, and if my book can be included on a shelf with some of the great thinkers of the age, men like David Dixon and Colin Calloway, who I'd encourage you to check out, uh, it would be a great honor. But at any rate, uh, what is the Battle of Catanning and where does it come from? Well, the Battle of Catanning or the Catanning Raid, which is my hypothesis of the book, more so than a battle, uh, is really an event uh, that is that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And we'll talk about that tonight. Uh, I would like to begin, as I begin in the book, by explaining who the major players are and exactly why it all falls down the way that it does. The first group I'd like to talk about uh, is a group called the uh, Leni Lenape, as they would call themselves, or the original people. If you are familiar familiar with this native group, you may know them as the Delaware Indians. Uh, but I think understanding who they are and understanding how they view themselves in a very rapidly changing colonial America is an important part of understanding uh, the Catanning Raid that 
has proven to be so influential in the history of not just Pennsylvania, but the Seven Years' War as a whole. The Lenape, or the Delaware, uh, are a people who originally live uh, when Europeans first arrive in what is today the Delaware River Valley. That's, uh, for those who are not aficionados of geography, the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. They live on both sides of the river and the surrounding area, uh, and they have a long-standing presence in the region. Now, we want to be very careful not to think of the Lenape's or the Delaware uh, as a as a tribal unit, as we typically think of tribal units, if you're familiar with a group like the Iroquois. Um, they don't necessarily fit into that fray. Uh, the Delaware uh, are more uh, of a people who share a common lifestyle than a people who share a common tribal allegiance. They speak the same language. It's an Algonquian language. Uh, we could call it the Lenape language if you were more comfortable with that. But the reality is there's subgroups of the Lenape that have different dialectical uh, variations in their language. But they do share a common lifestyle. They do not have a tribal leader in the traditional sense that is a person at the top who rules over all. Uh, but the most basic element of Lenape life is the individual village. Each village is sort of its own nation. What makes them a unified tribal peoples in the minds of scholars is the shared community in which they have, the shared way of life in which they keep. They rule over the area they call the Lenape Hawking. Uh, again, this is basically New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania, parts of New York, uh, when Europeans first arrive. And when we think of the history of colonial North America, we tend to think of it as a very British experience. And that's true. But it's not how it necessarily begins. There are numerous different European powers who settle in the Delaware River Valley before the English arrive, including Swedes, Dutch, some Finns. And when they arrive they realize they're in a very different world. We're talking about the early 17th century here. Um, and when they arrive, you know, they don't necessarily come to North America and plant a flag. One of the problems we have in the modern age is that uh, we like to shade areas on maps a certain way. And when we do that, we can give the impression that um, these people sort of claim all of the land for their own king and country. But I want you to put yourself in their shoes. When you first arrive, you're in an alien world, and you don't know if you can even survive here. People have starved in North America. Think Jamestown. And when you arrive, there is a powerful native sovereignty already in place who can live here, who has lived here. And you might be 30 or 40 people, if you're lucky. That's very scary. No 30 or 40 people are going to march into the midst of what is effectively um, a native kingdom, if you would, and claim the land for themselves. No, what you're going to do is assimilate. You're going to try and work with these people and let them know that we are here to live alongside you and not conquer you. And that's what you'll have in the Lenape's world. Uh, this idea that there is this separation and Europeans are, are, are guests in a new world. But that begins to change very rapidly whenever the English arrive, uh, especially in the form of William Penn. By the time William Penn arrives, uh, and if you don't know that story very briefly, uh, William Penn is a, is a wealthy man in England. His father was an admiral in the British Navy. His father 
uh, was owed a great deal of money by the king himself. That's when you know you're rich, when the king owes you money. And when his father dies, Penn inherits that, that debt effectively. And rather than the king paying William Penn the money back, uh, he offers William Penn a large tract of land in the New World, which he can run as a as a proprietary colony. Basically means his colony. His word rules the colony. William Penn was a Quaker. He was a member of a group called the Society of Friends. Uh, they were a marginalized uh, uh, Christian group in Europe. And Penn was, at least he felt, discriminated against a lot in England for his beliefs. So Penn wanted to found a colony where all people would be treated as equals and peace and brotherhood would rule. And he called it Pennsylvania or Penn's Woods. But when he got to his Pennsylvania, it was really just a few blocks of what is today modern Philadelphia. But he saw right away that the Delaware people were a powerful people and one that needed to be contended with. He realized if he came in guns a-blazing, which he wouldn't have as a Quaker, uh, he would have been in big trouble. So Penn will basically continue the policy that many of the previous European powers in the region had with the Delaware, uh, which was to coexist, to live peacefully side by side, but more importantly, to understand that if the Delaware want to wipe you out, they can. And they had before. Now, as Europeans look back at the founding of Pennsylvania, they look at this as a moment where William Penn establishes his holy experiment, or, more importantly, peaceable kingdom. The name of my upcoming book is War in the Peaceable Kingdom. And it's the idea that Penn treated the Indians as equals, which no one had before, uh, under the idea that, that Pennsylvania is a shared experiment. But this benevolence came from Penn. That's the story. And not from anyone else. The, the natives were simply uh, people who received his grace. But I think there's been significant scholarship to show uh, that really Penn was adopting a system that already worked pretty well in what his new colony would be in the Lenape world. Uh, and he didn't really have much of a choice otherwise. I mean, if he had come in claiming land, he probably would have been, been decimated by the Lenape as they stood. Uh, so it was much more a peaceable kingdom of the Lenape's making, I think, the Delaware's making, more than Penn's. At any rate, uh, it works, and it, they coexist for a few decades. Uh, there was some truth to the story of the peaceable kingdom. Penn paid the natives for their land. He treated them as equals. No one did this. If you wanted native land, you just took it through conquest. Uh, Penn didn't do that. And good feelings exist between the groups. That is, of course, until William Penn leaves his colony and ultimately dies. Because the colony is a proprietary colony rather than a royal colony, the British Empire doesn't necessarily have full control over it. Uh, really, power comes from an authority, lies in uh, the Penn family themselves. And the heirs of William Penn, especially a man named Thomas Penn, um, really become problematic for the Lenape, for the Delaware, because they don't agree with Penn's idea of a peaceful kingdom. They want land, and they want it fast. Uh, they make a deal with the Delaware in 1737 called the Walking Purchase, which is one of the great swindles in all of uh, colonial American history, uh, in which they take an enormous amount of land from the natives based on some shady uh, explanations. Um, 
their greatest weapons, it's been said, was surveyors and lawyers. Uh, but they took the equivalent of the state of Rhode Island away from the Lenape uh, in a pretty shady deal. And this is where our story really begins. Uh, the Lenape have to move somewhere else. They can't stay in their ancestral homeland. So they begin to move west. Now where do they go? Many of the Lenape believe that they can peacefully coexist with Europeans. They've done it with William Penn. They do understand they have to move further west, but they don't want to go too far because they believe that there is a place for them in this peaceable kingdom, in Penn's woods, in this holy experiment. And they settle in what is today about the middle part of the state of Pennsylvania in a region we call the Susquehanna River Valley, specifically the Wyoming Valley. You can think of these as the Wyoming Valley, Delaware, and what really sets them apart is this idea that they believe that political uh, reconciliation can be had. And they believe that Indians and Europeans can coexist side by side. Other Delaware, though, didn't share that opinion. They were angry, they were bitter, they felt that they were cheated from their land, and they felt that their ancestral hunting grounds had been stolen from them. And their perfect world was a world without white people in it. If they would have lived in the Wyoming Valley along the Susquehanna, in what is the middle of modern Pennsylvania, they would have shared a border with the Pennsylvanians. And in their mind, that land would be taken from them too. So rather than doing that, they took an extreme step. They moved far beyond the mountains that basically cut the modern state of Pennsylvania in half, the Appalachian Mountains, and they settled in a very sort of vast and empty sort of unknown region we call the Ohio country. They did this intentionally. They wanted to put space between themselves and the emerging English colonies on the coast, and what better space than the Appalachian Mountains. But the people who moved there settled in a series of villages. The biggest, and the one we're talking about tonight, was a place they called Kitani, or At the Great Stream. That will be anglicized into Kitanning, which is the name it still bears today. And that's where they built their perfect world. It was a world without Europeans and without European encroachments. It was right along the Allegheny River, which flows out of New York State, and ultimately joins with the Monongahela to form the Ohio River. Uh, that's the modern site of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's what they do. So if you're a Delaware person and you are willing to move to a place like Kitanning into the depths of the Ohio country, there is a few things you have to believe. One is that Europeans and Indians cannot coexist. And two is that if they try to encroach on your land, you will fight to defend it. You almost are a zealot. You're an extremist. Uh, and that's a political sense we understand. These would be far right-leaning uh, members of the Delaware world. So you have the Western Delaware, who fit that mold I just described. Angry zealots, potentially violent if necessary. And you have the Eastern Delaware. These Wyoming Valley Delaware, the Susquehanna Delaware, uh, who believe that peace and reconciliation is possible. That's the setup you need. To understand the rest of this story. And it's an important setup, which not enough people really understand. Fast forward to the 1750s. Things begin to change in the 1750s in North America. And the biggest change is this. The French, who keep their 
vast empire in the St. Lawrence River Valley, based in its heart of Quebec, uh, begin to move southward. Their goal is to unify Quebec, New France, the St. Lawrence River Valley, with their other big colony in North America, Louisiana, on the Gulf Coast, New Orleans uh, being a part of that. How you unify those places is through rivers. And how do you connect the St. Lawrence River uh, to the Mississippi, which of course runs through Louisiana? Well, there's one major connection. It's the Ohio River. If you want to control the Ohio River, you need to move into the Ohio country, which by the way, all of the western Delaware have now taken to reside. Angry and bitter and willing to defend their homeland. It's at this time the French begin to move into these villages that the western Delaware found. And it's not just Catanning. There are others. Uh, there's villages called Logstown, Sawkunk, Kuskuskies. Uh, Catanning is the biggest. Uh, but all of these villages have the same idea. This land is ours. It's not yours. We will fight to defend it. The French will make a pretty interesting offer to these western Delaware. They will say, uh, you want this land to be your own. We need this land to connect our empire. Which, by the way, if Louisiana and New France were connected, it would rival uh, a piece of territory spanning Paris to Moscow. Hugely important. But the French made one specific offer that the uh, western Delaware could not refuse. And it was this. They said, if the English take your land, they'll keep it forever. And they'll push you out. But we, the French, we don't want to do that. We want access to your rivers. We want to trade with you, which means money for everybody. But we have no interest in staying here. And that was probably true. Uh, the French system of empire, you can review previous episodes of wartime, wasn't so much about holding land, but monopolizing trade. For the western Delaware, this was great news. The French took it a step further. They said, in the event of a war... We want you to fight on our side. We'll give you weapons. We'll give you supplies. We'll give you gunpowder. And the only thing we need you to do is go back across the mountains and terrorize the colony of Pennsylvania. Keep them distracted. Keep them at bay. Let we, the French, implement our larger imperial plan and ultimately win control of North America and give you the land uh, guaranteed the freedom, the independence that you've wanted. And that's the setup. That's what takes us to uh, the beginning of the Seven Years' War. Now again, we did an entire season on the Seven Years' War. I'd encourage you to look at it, listen to it, if you haven't already, way back in the year 2013. And the Seven Years' War kicks off in earnest. It's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The Seven Years' War is the greatest and most, uh, uh, the, the largest war in world history to that point. Uh, Winston Churchill called it the First World War in the truest sense. And that's the guy who knows a thing or two about world wars. It's the biggest war in the history of the world until, you know, the next one. Uh, but it's the be all, end all of empire in the minds of the British and French uh, sovereignties that fight it. The British and French are the two largest superpowers on Earth. They will do battle around the globe from 1754 all the way till 1763. Those dates vary on what you consider to be the Seven Years' War, but 
You know, the war officially begins in 56. They fight in North America. They fight in the Caribbean. They fight in South America. They fight in Africa. They fight in India. They fight in Europe. They fight in East Asia. It's a war that's actually many small wars. And I think it is super important and endlessly fascinating. It's fought in Uruguay. It's fought in the Philippines. I mean, this is a war that's fought in the crystal blue waters of the Caribbean and the rainforests of Central America. Really impressive war. And part of it is going to be the event we talk about today. In October of 1755, the Western Delaware take up the hatchet. That's what they'll repeatedly refer to the engagement of war against Pennsylvania as. An Indian war is a terrible, horrible, uh, disturbing scourge that most people on the frontier of Pennsylvania have never seen before. It involves lightning-fast raids that come unexpectedly, terrible, gruesome violence, bodily mutilation, and torture, as well as the taking of captives. The raids that will be launched from 1756, 1755, all the way to 1758 in many cases, were launched from really one place. And it was that village of Kitanning, uh, this buzzing hub of activity in a pretty mysterious and dark Ohio country. In Philadelphia, the village of Kitanning makes a name for itself pretty quickly. In October of 1755, at a place called Penn's Creek, a western Delaware raid occurs that is the stuff of legend. Homes are burned and destroyed. Husbands uh, and sons are, are killed brutally, scalped in many cases. Women and children are taken captive. Penn's Creek is decimated in October of 1755. And the colony of Pennsylvania is put on notice for the first time. And then notice is, the western Delaware are at war. They're being aided and supplied by the French. And all of these captives are being taken somewhere. The question is where, and the bigger question is when will they strike next. They're led by a figure uh, who's something of a war chief. We don't want to say he's a hereditary chief. He does have some family ties, but he sets himself apart as a leader in battle, well-respected amongst the western Delaware, known as Shingus. We would spell that typically S-H-I-N-G-A-S, Shingus. He'll become known as Shingus the Terrible for the deeds which he executes on the frontier. But he's doing something for him that's very important. He's expressing uh, his idea that the Delaware heritage, their original world, Lenape Hawking, that world that was set up in the Delaware River Valley before Europeans arrived, was taken from them. He believes it was a destiny disrupted or a legacy lost. If you think those sound like very poetic phrases, again, I just wrote this book, so... Um, you know, that, that may be more appropriate for on paper than a podcast, but, it, you know, that's fine. Um, but Shingus is that kind of figure. When there's a major strike or raid, he's involved, and he sets himself apart very quickly. Now, for us today, the people who captured Osama bin Laden with a, a nighttime raid, we think there may be a very easy solution to this. Why didn't Pennsylvania just take its army, march it over the mountains, and eliminate Katanning? That would solve a lot of their problems. 
But in that, you have the legacy of William Penn looming large, and that's worthy of some discussion. The reason the colony of Pennsylvania can't send its army to decimate uh, Kittanning as a village and spare the frontiersmen uh, hundreds of gruesome deaths is because Pennsylvania doesn't have an army. Uh, and there's a pretty deep ideological reason for that. Pennsylvania was founded by Quakers. Quakers dominated the government for the first 70 years. And one of the primary tenets of Quakerism is the idea of the inner light, which states that every human being, regardless of their skin color or their ethnic background, has the light of God inside of them. And to take a life is to extinguish that light. For that reason, Pennsylvania never had an army. They were pacifists. And because Quakers dominated the colonial assembly, it was sort of their number one mantra that they never would have an army. Now, by the time you get to 1750, Pennsylvania is a happening place. It's a growing place. It's a colony of much more than Quakers. In fact, Quakers are the minority. Quakers still dominate Philadelphia, but so do other peoples, non-Quaker peoples, uh, who want to be engaged in politics. On the frontier, you have the Scots-Irish. They are deeply Presbyterian. Uh, they are uh, very, very driven by this sense of localized autonomy and freedom. And they have no love for the Quakers. They are the ones suffering most of these attacks as they live right on the border of the Ohio country itself. To the north, you have many different German sects. Um, they will, over time, become... Uh, groups like the Amish and the Mennonites will be groups like that. Uh, and they come to Pennsylvania because William Penn promised true religious freedom and he lived up to his promise. But they're being attacked as well. They tend to also be pacifists. Um, so what I'm saying is Pennsylvania is a real melting pot of peoples. And the fact that one religion dominates the government and imposes its will on everyone else is a big problem. The Scots-Irish are being uh, raided and, and, and killed by Indians. Uh, by the western Delaware all the time, and they're saying, protect us, do something for us. But in Philadelphia, the government, you have that deep ideological dissent. This is where a man named Benjamin Franklin first jumps onto the scene in the political realm. And boy, does this story take off. Franklin's part of the Quaker party, not because he is a Quaker, uh, but because that's the party in power. And he knows if you want to be in power, you got to be part of that party. But he is, again, not a pacifist. His number one goal in life is to effectively make sure that the proprietors, the Penn family, pay their fair share of taxes. Because the Penn family has total control of the colony, they control the executive branch, they appoint the governors. One of their number one rules is that they never have to pay any taxes on their estates for any reason. And Benjamin Franklin begins to lead what he calls an anti-proprietary party, saying, you're going to pay your taxes. And I'll freeze up the whole assembly if you don't. So while people are being killed on the frontier, more raids occur. Places like the Great Cove are raided, as well as a place called Nadenhutten, a simple Moravian missionary site. Um, Pennsylvanians are demanding defense. And the governor won't sign any bill that raises an army by taxing the proprietors, his bosses. And the assembly won't pass any bill. Uh, that doesn't include proprietary money. You also have some of the Quakers who won't sign any military bill at all because they don't believe in 
uh, having a military. It's a big political mess. It's the essence of gridlock. We won't go too much into it here because we want to focus on the battle. But it's a big part of the book I just wrote. Again, War in the Peaceable Kingdom, the Catanning Raid of 1756. Ultimately, by 1756, after hundreds of people are killed uh, and hundreds more taken captive by the Western Delaware, Benjamin Franklin is able to wrangle enough votes to raise Pennsylvania's first army. Uh, It's not a perfect army, it's a volunteer army, but it's an army nevertheless. Its goal is sort of nondescript, it's highly political, it's not terribly effective, but it's something. And that's exactly what the politicians in Pennsylvania want. They want to prove to their citizens, we are doing something, anything to protect you. Because there's been more than one occasion when mobs have threatened to burn Philadelphia if they did not raise an army. The first thing these armies do is build forts all across the frontier. They're pretty spread apart. They're garrisoned by a few dozen volunteer men. Uh, None of them are terribly effective. In July of 1756, the largest of these forts, Fort Granville, is attacked by the Catanning warriors and burned to the ground. Its entire garrison is taken captive or killed. It's a big slap in the face to Pennsylvania, And it proves to most of the citizens who live there that this government, even with an army, really can't protect you. It's decided that the only way to really end this problem is to march an army into the Ohio country, something that's never happened before from Pennsylvania's standpoint, and to take out Catanning. They're not looking for a battle. They're looking to get in and get out, quick and dirty. Save the captives who are held there and burn down the village. And if they get tied up along the way, that's a loss for them. Because the last thing they want is a battle. They want to strike and leave, just like, by the way, the Indians have been doing uh, for the last year. This will be led by a man named John Armstrong. Armstrong is not a military man. He's more of a logistical man. Uh, He builds things on the frontier, but he is Scots-Irish, which are most of his men, if not all of them. And he is in good with the Penn family. So he'll take 300 men. He'll march them through the wilderness. And he'll strike at Catanning. At least that's the plan. He reaches Catanning on September 8th of 1756. In the early morning hours. And he sees something pretty remarkable. He finds that Catanning is not one village. But actually seven villages clustered together. He finds that many of the men are still asleep. Uh, And there's also many women and children and elderly who live in this village. Catanning had developed a reputation as sort of the heart of darkness of the Ohio country for a lot of the people back east. But he saw they were just people living as normal people would live. He also saw, though, tremendous stores of gunpowder and preparations for war. It was pretty clear to him at that point that Catanning was where these raids actually began. So in the early morning hours, as the sun was coming up, John Armstrong ordered his 300 men to launch the raid on the Indian village of Catanning on the Allegheny River. Now, the the geography of this is important. Catanning is situated between two big-time important uh, landforms that can both protect the site, but also very easily become its downfall. 
containings along the Allegheny River, which flows north to south. The Allegheny is sort of, if you want to think of it this way, looking from above, uh, the western boundary of Katanning. And to the east, there's a large, craggy hill uh, covered in trees that sort of frames in the eastern boundary of Katanning. Sir Armstrong believes if you can slip in between those two landforms, wreak havoc on the village, nobody in there will really have uh, much of a chance. And in the early morning of September... Uh, 8th of 1756, Armstrong runs into the into the village. Now again, people like to call this the Battle of Catanning. The, the, the town is still there. It's a modern town now, but it's pretty well marked. Um, it's not a, a battle in the traditional sense. Uh, it begins as a raid. Armstrong's men move into a large cornfield that's along the river. Uh, they drive many of the warriors out. Most of the people there are not expecting this. And many of them flee to a series of cabins uh, on the high ground uh, near that cornfield. The battle itself will last about six hours. Most of it is not this melee that I've been describing. Most of it's what happens next. As the warriors run for the main body of the village, they put themselves in cabins. Cabins that they themselves built or that perhaps with the aid of French traders they had constructed for them. And they begin to sort of go in there, really hunger down, and fire back at the Pennsylvanians. This becomes a shootout in the strictest sense of the word. It's a firefight, and it lasts for hours. One of the primary targets in Katanning was a Delaware man named Tawea. The English called him Captain Jacobs. And Captain Jacobs had a $700 bounty placed on his head. So did Shingus because they were believed the two major leaders of this Indian War. It was a big showdown, it was a monumental event. Uh, Captain Jacobs was ultimately pinned down till he ran out of his home and was gunned down. And the death of Captain Jacobs was probably the high point of the raid. By the afternoon, the fighting had subsided. Most of the Indian village of Katanning was burning, largely because in these cabins they were shooting at were tremendous stores of gunpowder. They all blew up. So the village was basically razed to the ground at that point. And Armstrong and his men went above that large hill I described that was the eastern boundary of the town and watched the fireworks show. Now, we don't know a lot about what happens at Catanning. Again, my book will stand as the most thorough explanation and examination of the event. But the sources tell us some interesting things. One was that there were over 100 prisoners on site. The Pennsylvanians brought back seven. Yikes. And the other is that there were French forces at the village at the time of the battle. But we have very little or scant evidence to suggest that they actually participated in the battle. Most of what they did was help the uh, warriors help, uh, take their hostages and captives deeper into the Ohio country. But they were definitely there. That's one of the major findings of my book. But with Catanning destroyed, the Pennsylvanians returned back east to Philadelphia. And the pomp and circumstances and fanfare begin. They offer John Armstrong, this commander, uh, a sword. They offer him a decorative belt. They mint coins in honor of the event. Silver for the officers and bronze for the uh, people that did most of the fighting, the infantrymen. 
and they really hype this up. And there's a few reasons for it, and they're mostly political. As far as success of the raid, there isn't much militarily to speak of. But I would argue that was never the intention. The intention was for politicians in Philadelphia to put on a show. A show of saying, hey, look, we actually are effective. And here's a raid deep into enemy territory. It was sort of like the Doolittle raid of World War II. It didn't accomplish much, but it did show that we were willing to strike back. Um, and that was the ultimate goal and intention of the Catanic raid. Militarily, whatever was achieved, again, very little occurred. Uh, of the 100 prisoners on site, seven returned. Uh, but that was never the the object anyway. Captain Jacob's death was a big deal, but again, um, the main target, Shingus, escaped. But again, it's politics. It's politics as we know it. It's simple politics. Uh, and I think this is why the containing raid is so important. Now, in the larger context of the Seven Years' War, I think things also become interesting. Everybody in Britain and everybody in France knows that the Seven Years' War is the great be-all, end-all of empire. It's winner-take-all, effectively. In the end, the British will win. They'll take all of North America, tripling their imperial uh, land holdings virtually overnight. But from the year 1755 all the way to 1758, there aren't many victories to come by for the British. They're getting their clock cleaned around the world. And with everything at stake, that's very bad news. They actually call these years the years of defeat. But there is one bright spot in it, and it's this raid on Catanning. Now again, when we talked about the effectiveness of the raid, there wasn't much to be said for it. It was effective in that it showed Pennsylvania was willing to defend itself. They were the last of the British colonies to make an army, by the way. But it didn't really achieve much militarily. The raids of the western Delaware did continue. In fact, there were more of them. Uh, less people would die, however. But that wasn't the point. The British looked at the Battle of Catanning as, again, the lone bright spot in a period of pretty dark losing, in the midst of a pretty dark losing streak, empire-wide. But it's a fascinating story. It's an important story. Again, it's a story that if you don't understand the political element of it, doesn't make much sense. I'd encourage you to buy the book and read the book uh, in November of 2016 when it's released. But the story goes on in unique ways. Um, John Armstrong, the man who led the, the raid, would go on to fight alongside George Washington in the American Revolution at Germantown and Brandywine. He would sit for a while in the Continental Congress and the Congress of the Confederation. And as a gift for his military service, he was given a huge tract of land in the Ohio country for his own. And of course, the burned out ruins of Catanning were part of that. He was asked if he wanted to name this land, and he did. He named it Victory. So you have that one little last piece of propaganda along the way. But I think it's an important story. I think it's a fascinating story. I think it's a good story to jump back into the second half of our season. In case you've been wondering where I've been the last few months. And I'm excited about the second part of the season. In the weeks to come, just to let you know that they are coming, we're back. Uh, we have a couple of very cool episodes. Next week, the Battle of the Little Bighorn. The week after that, Confederate Revenge. The burning of Chambersburg. I'm looking forward to this. It'll be a great summer and a great end to season five. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. <laughs>